Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If that didn't wake up Katie from her nap, nothing will. I know, poor Katie. All the woman wants to do is just take a little nap. I don't blame her. I guarantee the inaccuracies in our surgery episode are going to make her come awake. Oh God, I hope so. She'll wake, she'll wake up and be like, it's not pronounced that way. As well she should, because we're going to butcher it. Get it? Absolutely going to butcher it. You know, today, we, today we, went out for, we went out for dinner. We had, we had breakfast for dinner, Marie. Oh, I love doing that. Oh, she's flipping me off. Aww. We had breakfast or dinner at a at a diner across the street from us called the Neighborhood Cafe, which is amazing. If you're in St. Paul, go there. Aww. They have some of the best pancakes ever. And the whole time she was making fun of me because she thought it would be funny to say that I had a noodle neck. <laughs> but I don't have a noodle neck. My neck is normal size. Like, if anything, I have a, I have a sausage neck. Noodle neck. I look like a thumb on top of a thumb or a thumb on top of an egg. What up, noodle neck? I don't have a noodle neck. Noodle neck. All right. This episode, dear listeners of the Noodle Next Scientist podcast, is History of Surgery Part 3. Very exciting, this episode. We are going to start, so last episode we talked about how in America, the Civil War was raging and basically it stopped all medical progress. And so it's an interesting part of American history and the history of the science of surgery because you have this huge casualties this huge loss of life just right across the Atlantic, while in Europe, and especially in the United Kingdom, you had these advances in surgery and in medicine that would have saved a tremendous amount of those lives if only that knowledge had kind of diffused its way over to the Americas. If only they had the interwebs. If only they had the interwebs, as opposed to today, where that's where I get all of my cat (laughs) photos and other nefarious items. Exactly. Now, so this episode, we are going to talk about what were those advances that were going on in the United Kingdom and in mainland Europe generally. And in particular, we're going to focus on a couple of really interesting characters. And uh, it's going to get good. It's going to be kind of gory. Not as gory as last time, though. Not as many amputated limbs. All right, so we're going to get into this episode, and uh, we're going to try to not lose any limbs. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. Today's episode, History of Surgery, Part 3. So, Marie, you had a question from the listeners, actually, after last episode. I had a I, well, it wasn't even after the last episode. It's actually more a question for our listeners. Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with one science or surgery. Good. Or anything. That's good. So here's my quandary, dear listeners. I have a work function coming up. And it is being held at the Grammy Museum in L.A., which sounds like it should be really fun. However, it's like a a dinner cocktail thing, and nobody said what we're supposed to wear. So I think the so I think that the issue is the issue is that you know I guess normally if you are a woman you would dress up you would wear 
a cocktail dress. I need to buy the heels. I need to do makeup and stuff. I just am not, I am wondering if, um, and I was joking with my friend about it today because we were actually, we were actually kind of concerned about it. My, my work friend and I were, cause we, we were just like, oh, we really, we feel like we should probably should dress up, but we don't want to. And I'm like, you know what? I really just want to wear my tracksuit. And I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. Cause I have like, like when we're just kind of running errands and doing stuff, I have a black tracksuit, a black Adidas tracksuit that is very reminiscent of. You're going to dress up like Missy Elliott? Well, semi like Missy Elliott, but if you get in your way back machine a little bit more, sir, it's Run DMC. Not cultural appropriation you can't, of Run DMC. You can't dress. Okay, just because a party is at the Grammy Center doesn't mean you can dress like Run DMC. I think I can. I don't see why. I, so here's what here is my question to the uh, to our listening audience, our wise, astute listening audience. Why can't I? Why can't I dress like Run DMC? Not again, not a cultural appropriation <laughs> of white DMC, but just the tracksuit and the Adidas of which I own and I've owned for a number of years and they're very comfortable and I think they're relatively appropriate. Cause it's tricky to rock around the block. <laughs> okay, all right. We have to sweep. Okay. okay, sorry. It's okay. This so if if you <laughs> this is a big question. Um, Should have done an episode on this. Uh, no. Um so yeah, so if you if you have an opinion one way or the other, again, like I I guess I, I can wear a dress. It's painful. They're tight, you know, you have to take small steps, you're not very comfortable at any given time and you can't really eat a lot necessarily, or a tracksuit. Hello. Listeners at home are like, we already did history, or we already did magical clothing. We did. I should have tried for this and that, but I'm just saying. I'm just saying, if anybody else out there, <laughs> again, has some decorum about, I know how you should do things at a work function. I'm just saying, you know, shout it out, viewers, at, uh, at Mad Scientist Podcast, or... Team Giant Squid, I'm just curious. Nice. The other day at work, I I thought I was going to be able to just, like, work from home. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to run in quick to grab my laptop to then come home. Oh, and then... Gotcha. And then I got... I gotcha. And then I got to work, and everyone else was there. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. And I put I was wearing, because I was, like, really confident I could get in, and it wouldn't be a big deal. I, I was confident no one would go in because it was, like a huge blizzard here in the Twin Cities. Mm. And uh, instead, nature decided to screw me and it didn't snow for like, you know, seven hours. But so I was wearing a leftover crack hoodie, which is a really good punk band, mm. and sweatpants. See? And I got to work all day in that. Oh, and my Not Alone podcast t-shirt too. Very nice. So very professional looking. Anyways. What do you normally wear? Just, just I wear enough. normally like business casual clothing. So it was good. I definitely did. Business casual, Chris. Yeah, it was a good time. But you're all in your hoodie. Yeah. But you see, didn't you, didn't you feel like, oh, I can get more done? Oh, I feel more proficient. I feel Honestly, more it was one of the most ease. efficient days I've had so far, but see? that's not really the point. All right. History of surgery. Thanks a lot, corporate America. Thank you for allowing me that, uh, that tangent. No I problem. Feel better now. It's a good one. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, there's that. Um, all right. So we are going to pick up here around 17. Right around the 17, 1750s in the United Kingdom, we talked a little bit about John Hunter and why he was such a revolutionary figure in surgery. But in particular, some of the things that he was really good with or good for 
were the creation of what he deemed as what he deemed specimens. And these were basically anatomical curiosities or anatomical items that could be studied by students later on for analysis of like, okay, well, this is what a normal, let's, let's say, for example, this is what a normal liver looks like. This is what a diseased liver looks like, right? This is what one would expect a, a bone um, of the arm to look like. And this is how it attaches to the joint. And these things that we think of as being pretty, you know, like, Route. Yeah, pretty, pretty yeah. easy. Like stuff that we think of as being like, well, yeah, no, duh. If you're going to be a doctor, you need to know what the organs do and what the body looks like inside and how it all connects. Mm -hmm. Those were revolutionary ideas at the time. And in fact, they were ideas that got John Hunter in a lot of trouble. And in particular, the reason that this was such an issue for the time period was that there was this idea of the sanctity of the body. And in particular, the what would occur on the day of judgment when mm -hmm. Jesus came back riding a lion to heavy metal music. Oh, yeah, man. The question was, Sweet. the question was if, you know, he's, he rides over the hill on his lion and with wings. Well, so, 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 okay. I'm being flippant. The, the, the idea was when you get resurrected, when Jesus comes back, and when calls you're you sent to heaven, right. Mm -hmm. You need to be a full, a full body. Right. Because otherwise, you're not going to be able to go to heaven. If you're missing a head right. or you're missing an arm or something, then that's not going to come with you. Or, yeah, yeah. On judgment, right? When he calls forth from the grave, you have to have all your parts together. Right. And it's very similar to the, some of the stuff that we touched on in the vampire episode, where we talked about the desecration of corpses. And in particular, the idea that a vampire, like you couldn't come back from the dead if you're body was separated into bits or your head was removed, your heart was removed, right? Like, mm -hmm. and we see this idea of the body as a, like the, the matter of the body itself being important. Mm -hmm. We see this idea. I mean, it's still, a, it's still an idea today, right? Like yeah. we don't want to think about what happens to our body physically after we die, but like literally you get stuck into a fridge and you wait until someone comes and claims you, mm -mm -mm. right? Like that's kind of the way it happens. So, mm -hmm. or the, the body is a temple, right? The body's the temple, right? Is this, yeah, there's the same. Yeah. Yeah. There's this idea that the body is a, or even that the body after the fact has some kind of special um, significance, right? I mean, yeah. I think uh, as cool, like we have a lot of fake you know, we have a lot of fake, bones and skulls and stuff in our in our apartment mm -hmm. i don't know if i would be super into having a real a skull from a real person yeah right like it's or the idea of the air burial the, the nepalese monks air burial right yeah it's, it's right where they chop up the body the monk dies they chop up the body they feed it to the vultures right i mean it's it's an interesting concept but it's one that i think a lot of us are still pretty touchy about right yeah, it's squeamish. And so the the fear was that, you know, the idea was that if your your body isn't, you still need your body after you die, <laughs> right? If you want to make it to heaven, if you want to make it to, um, if you want to make it to your final reward, then your body has to stay okay. And your body has to receive a Christian burial as well, mm -hmm. right? And so to disinter a body, or to remove it from the ground was also considered to be a act of an act of sacrilege and also an act of desecration. 
Yeah. That you were hurting the body. You were hurting the soul of the person. Yeah, it's violence. Right. So the idea of, of someone wanting to study a body, of wanting to go out and cut up a body of a person that they didn't know after death was considered to be very, very taboo, like more taboo than I think we are. We think again, we think of it now as, you know, like on my, on my driver's license, I'm an organ donor, right? Like if I get into a, you know, when, not if, when I get into a horrific, but awesome car crash, dude, um, before my death, nice, you know, (laughs) nice, nice. Um, nice. Like, you know, it, there's this idea that your body today that you're you're doing good by becoming like an organ donor. You're, but you know, even that, even that organ donor uh, insignia or stamp on the license is a relatively new thing and was relatively, you know, contested. Oh, absolutely. Somewhat, and the right? thing is, and so it's, it's like, like, this isn't, we haven't gotten to this. You no, know, and, I mean? and we have our own, and we have our own taboos about it too, right? Like we have people. I've I have heard it when I tell people that I'm an organ donor, my license or something. People will be like, "Well, aren't you afraid that the ambulance driver is just gonna let you die?" <gasps> like, what? That seems nobody really. Yeah, no. yeah, that's like a relatively common. I've had that come up pretty relatively often in conversation. What? And the other the other part of it too. The other thing is the ambulance driver is just gonna let you die. Well, seriously. And then the other, you know, the or the ambulance. No, that never. That never entered my mind until you said so. I guess you got like a text message from the hospital. Thanks, like, Frank, uh, you know, at work. Yeah, we need, we need, we need kidneys today. And they see me there and they're like, those are some sweet looking kidneys. I bet. <laughs> I bet those kidneys have only gotten the fattest of meats. You know, I'm like, I'm like Kobe beef. I'm like, <laughs> I've been living a life of. I they're almost, nudging you with their foot. They're like, how you feeling? Do you need a little bit more morphine? I'm telling you, they see me. They're like, all this guy's been doing is eating cheese and drinking beer. He's he's prime, prime organ meat. It's not like they're eating you. This is ghoulish. (laughs) Okay, I'm done. So the other the other part of this that's really interesting, I think, is we 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 still haven't really gotten away from this idea of of the body as being a really important object or not even an important object necessarily like yes at the time it was thought again that the body had some essential part of you and there were even questions about could you be resurrected could you be brought back right and so the question of actually the question of actually desecrating a body in this way was considered very taboo and in fact was was criminal it was criminal to perform um, anatomical surgery, even for the purpose of studying anatomy or getting better at curing the living. So the, the anatomy act, right? Yeah. So John Hunter though, you know, realized that there was, first off, there were, there were kind of two ways you could go about sidestepping this problem. The first was to study animals. And he actually did that quite extensively. A lot of his specimens were animal organs and the dissection of animals at his surgery school that was in his home was 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 really common, right? And that's really where a lot of his advances came from were in what's known as comparative anatomy. So, um, and this was before Charles Darwin, but the idea that, you know, well, a heart, a heart is pretty much a heart. And so, so long as we are seeing how this thing might operate in an animal, you know, a pig or a horse or whatever, mm-hmm. we might be able to then get some information about what we expect it to be doing in a human, right? Yeah. And that was a very revolutionary idea as well. 
So that's one way to get about it. The other way to go around it was to steal corpses. And this gives rise to a profession that was known as the resurrection men or resurrectionists. Which is such an awesome monker, right? Like it sounds so much better than what it actually meant. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So grave robbing was a extensive problem in Victorian England. Yeah. And the basic idea was that a body, a human body, could fetch a huge amount of money on the open market, specifically due to the prevalence of what were known as private anatomy schools. So, you know, the, the hospitals had the ability to go out and get the bodies of, of convicts, of criminals. Mm-hmm. They were given a stipend, for lack of a better term, of bodies on which they could perform surgeries and study. And that was part of the punishment of the criminals, as we talked about last episode, that a part of your punishment, besides just being killed, was that, okay, well, besides just killing you, we're going to desecrate your corpse. Yes. Right, we're going to send you to the surgeon's block. Now, private surgeons, though, had no such access, and so they had to go to criminals, basically, to find ways to get these bodies. Yes, to these resurrectionists. And in some cases, such as in the case of John Hunter, there is evidence to suggest that they actually also, the surgeons actually themselves also went on these ghoulish nighttime hunts to find bodies. Mm -hmm. And in particular, to find bodies of special importance or special disease. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, one type of body that was considered to be very, very, I guess, preferable for the surgeon were the bodies of children. Because there was really there was really no sense of how a child should develop. And especially in a country where you had a lot of childhood ailments and a lot of childhood mortality, the question of what makes a healthy child and what kind of um, what kind of you know development should you expect, both from an outward appearance of like height and whatever, um, but also internally, that was a really interesting question. And how the body grows was a very, very interesting question for these surgeons. And another t- another type of body, consequently, that was also interesting, were the bodies of pregnant women. Yep. Right? How did pregnancy occur? How could we make it less dangerous? I mean, so being pregnant and giving birth was one of the most dangerous things that you could be in uh, Victorian England, right? It was extremely dangerous. I think one of the most dangerous things you could be in Victorian England was a woman. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, you got a point there, right? Um, There's not a lot of good... It came out well. No, you know, it's not. No, well, it's not, not an easy. Not an easy stretch. I think even for the uh, even for the upper class. No. So um, from seventeen hundred to seventeen fifty, this is from a journal of the Royal Society of Medicine paper. Um, the uh, maternal mortality rates were ten point five for every thousand live births. Oof. From eighteen hundred to eighteen fifty, it was five. So even in those even in that short period of time, things got a lot better. Right. Yeah. Um, so for every thousand, you would have only five deaths, which is still a huge amount compared to what we look at today for uh, maternal mortality. And that's not to say anything about infant mortality either. Mm-hmm. This is just, yeah, being, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So in the, um, so just as a, as a, I guess, aside for the listeners in the, um, in the, like the modern age. So let's say from like the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking like a value of, you know, almost zero deaths per hundred, 
right? We're talking like deaths per thousand per 10,000 today. So um, significantly better than it was back then. Now, here's a quandary. Can I ask a question that's sort of leading? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what would happen if they couldn't find any natural death on a given time period? Well, in some cases, if they couldn't find any natural deaths that fit what they wanted, bum, bum, bum. Um, they would murder people. <laughs> yes. And there is an actual famous case, uh, a duo of two men known as the Burke and Hare murders out of Edinburgh, Scotland. Over 10 months, they killed 16 people for the express interest to be sold as corpses to a Dr. Robert Knox to be dissected at his anatomy lectures. So again, a private, a private uh, surgeon who didn't have, uh, who didn't have normal means, quote unquote, normal means to access corpse on a regular basis. All of a sudden, you know, had this windfall of, of fresh corpses. Um, but inevitably, like that, I, I believe the story is that uh, one of them, one of them had a lodging house, and so you would come to Edinburgh uh, uh, City, and you would and you would come and you would be in their lodging house, and you'd be staying there, and then you would mysteriously meet your meet your end. Uh, for their murder spree, which is a really a pretty gruesome, um, you know, it's a pretty gruesome way to make to make money too. I mean, it's very mercenary, but it's also sort of speaking of kind of the necessity towards it. You know, it's like if that's where you can actually make a fair amount of money, and they know exactly what what someone's looking for. Probably a pretty good incentive. Yeah. For some so people. there's actually another not, not marry you, but no, you know. No. There's also another another really interesting story of people who had particular deformities or particular interesting physical ailments. Yeah. Were also basically collected by anatomists. So John Hunter had a collection of almost thirteen thousand specimens by the time of his death. Good God. And those are just anatomical specimens, not including other things that he had, right? <sighs> other collections, items, other items of his collection that actually ended up becoming the um, the Hunterian collection. First at the Hunterian Museum, which was a museum that he had at the time, and now at the Hunterian Museum that was then moved to the Royal College of Surgeons. Now, and you can actually still see the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, and in particular, you can still see the body of one... Charles Byrne, the famous Irish giant. Oh. Now, Byrne was seven foot, seven inches tall. Wow. He was a basically like a, a sideshow uh, star at the time. Mm-hmm. And he basically asked that when he died, he'd be buried at sea. Mm. Now, surgeons at the time were like, there is no way we're letting that dude get buried at sea. We got to get that body, Right. Again, just so... It's terrible. Ghoulish to ignore, you know, dying wishes or, you know, kind of what's going to happen to your body afterwards. And sort of, they're like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. We've got this boat queued of a schooner over here all ready for you to... No! Psych. Now, interestingly enough, Byrne actually knew that Hunter might have wanted a skeleton. 
So he actually made these, he made plans with his, um, he made plans with his family and friends that his body would be buried at sea, but specifically within a, a lead coffin that was sealed. <sighs> but on the way to, on the way to the ocean, some, uh, some basically grave robbers under John Hunter's discretion um, tricked them into, you know, they tricked them, grabbed the body and then brought it back to, back to Hunter's residence where he then um, reduced it, you know, down. He, he cut away, he studied it, whatever, ended up with the skeleton and then actually put it on display only about four to five years after the, the body was stolen. Oh. Now it's still on display. Oh. It's still on display. They actually did a, a public poll um, December 2011 to uh, January of 2012 on this on the skeleton. Should it be returned? Should it be sent back to sea? Should it should it actually be buried with his wishes? Yeah. And um, and and 32 percent of people said, no, we should keep it. 13 percent said we should just put it away, like get rid of it for for exhibit, but keep it. And 55% said, no, we ha- it has to be buried at sea. Now, only about 500 people voted in this poll. So maybe it was the 500 kind of people that, like, I don't know, are cold-hearted or something. But I think that body should be sent to sea. Absolutely. Now, Absolutely it should. There is, a, there is a change.org petition currently that was started by Richard McKee of Oregon in the United States. Um, that has only gotten about 400 signatures so far. Yes. So if you're listening to this and you think that he should be buried at sea, like I do, I, I urge you to go sign that change.org petition. Well, we will have link a link to it. Yes. All on our show notes. Cause yeah, all dozen of us are going <laughs> to sign that bad boy. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, again, like you're, you're gone. There is no way that you can, guarantee anything at that point just like it's very hard to guarantee anything about your living body when you're still above ground but that's just there is no reason to to not give him what his wish is now after all this time that's so you're right that is that is very cold-hearted oh no so actually it, it, the petition closed it only had 456 supporters at the end what oh maybe we should email them Seriously. Let's say reopen it. We Maybe still we have a, we should still link and we can say please reopen it for uh for consideration for bear. Or you know what? Maybe you and I will just get some cheap plane tickets. <laughs> we'll masks. steal it back. We'll just steal it back and then and then one of us will leave it in his car for a matter of months. We'll finally get around to <laughs> to putting it to sea. But I just yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. Now Here's now here's an interesting thing though about all this. So we're so now so John Hunter basically is remembered as both so Hunter is remembered as a very controversial figure mm. because of his kind of penchant for um stealing the bodies. Yeah, I mean it's kind of it's one of those weird things because it's like it's like modern day equivalents where we try to outlaw a certain type of science or like a I don't know, any kind of stem cell research. Yeah, stem cell research was kind of the one that I was getting at where by outlawing stem cell research, we've just stifled scientific progress without really any benefits to anyone because most stem cells come from, you know, tissue that's already been deceased anyways or was never alive to begin with. Um, 
it's a, it is a touchy subject, obviously. And mm-hmm. so obviously we understand that too. So we're just not going to get into it super hard right now. No. But we have to, you know, and, and, and it ends up coming up with all these other questions about, you know, yeah. what are the bounds of ethical science, right? Like, what do we consider to be? Uh, so like, li- you know, Hunter is sort of, depending on how you look at him, he's both a, he's a hero and a villain, right? He started, mm-hmm. he started animal testing, which has led to more saved lives than almost any yes. advancement in, in, in medicine. Right. Without without the testing of on animals in some ways, we would not have. I mean, the majority of the treatments that have saved lives mm-hmm. and at the very least, none of the treatments that have come out in the last 80 years or the last 20 years since the 80s. Right. Um, right. And that's at the very least. It, it goes farther back than that. If we had never um, if we had never had this kind of villainous scotsman stealing bodies we might never have learned how to control bleeding effectively or uh learned that an, or, or it might have taken longer for us to realize that anatomy was an important skill right it was an important tool of the surgeon yes so yes it's a, he's a he's a person that has i think a lot of both positives and negatives to him and that's kind of that's almost in some ways the mark of a really important scientist right that hmm. Their work raises ethical questions that we keep pondering after the fact. Yeah, and make us makes us somewhat uncomfortable, right? As well, right? Now, so John Hunter died in 1793. What happened to his body? Funnily enough, his uh, funnily enough, his body was was buried. Oh, really? <laughs> he was, say. He was uh, what's the word? He was. Um, yeah, he he had a whole thing where he was like, I don't want to be, uh-huh. I don't want to be dissected. I want to be buried. Oh. Like what a what a fucking hypocrite. But it's, <laughs> it's whatever, I guess. Because um, I mean, really, I mean, isn't that sort of like he should have just donated his body to science at that point? You would think so. Should have, could have, would have. But you know, I mean, he's all like, oh hell no, I got to make sure he had all the guards and stuff to make sure that he was interned that's so crazy yeah it's it's really interesting so um so yeah it's super interesting now um and he's also like he's also not really known of as known as as a very good like so here's a quote from um here's a quote from biographer Mm -hmm. quote his and this is on john hunter his nature was kindly and generous though outwardly rude and repelling Mm. um yeah so that kind of sums him up, right? Yeah. He, on the inside, did a lot of good things, but he did a lot of shady crap to get there, right? So, okay, so John Hunter dies 1793. At that point, really, surgery had been revolutionized um, by him and through the study of anatomy. Now, this led to other surgeons being trained in his, his techniques, basically. Mm-hmm in the techniques of surgery and studying of anatomy that really became, came into vogue after his, after his time working. So the next scientist or the the next big thing that really made a huge difference to, so John Hunter revolutionized surgery and turned it into a science. He talked about experimentation. Mm -hmm. He created these special, uh, these special specimens for analysis after the fact he really, you know, made this a huge leap forward. 
the next big advancement that we still haven't even gotten to, we keep hinting at it, is the germ theory of disease and specifically the importance of sterilization and cleaning in surgery. Now, the prevalent theory at the time was that disease was caused by what is known as miasma. Yes. And miasma is an interesting... Miasma. Basically, the idea of the miasma theory was that Basically, disease spread by noxious odors, by these bad smells. Mm-hmm. And so by, by basically controlling what you breathed in, you could become healthier, you could become healthier, and you could fight off mm-hmm. infection, you could fight off disease. Now, this led to some hospitals where you would actually put people that were all uh, sick together into one area, like one ward, right? So tuberculosis wards or cholera wards or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. And um, while that has created some really good ghost stories, it was not very good for the patients. No. Right? And the other thing was that certain- Kind of made them ghosts. The other thing is that certain, certain regions or certain times of day, certain times of year were thought to be more prone to miasma. And so actually I found this really interesting quote. Um, I found this on Wikipedia on- the the page on miasma theory, but this quote is a um, this is a poem that was made by Han Yu of the Tang Dynasty. Um, he wrote this to his nephew after he was banished to the Chao Prefecture in China, and so the Chao Prefecture was an area that had been completely decimated by um, by plagues, and at the time they thought that plague was spread by again this like dirty air of the area. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is the poem. At dawn, I sent a single warning to the throne of the nine steps. At evening, I was banished to Chao Yang, 8,000 leagues, striving on behalf of a noble dynasty to expel an ignoble government. How should I, withered and worn, deplore my future lot? The clouds gather on Qin Mountain. I cannot see my home. The snow bars the passes of land. My horse cannot go forward. But I know that you will come from afar to fulfill your set purpose and lovingly gather my bones on the banks of that plague-stricken river. Wow. It's an intense poem. Yeah, so probably not, you know, going somewhere to get better. Yeah, it's super interesting. So, yeah. The so this idea of miasma though was like I said very prominent and it actually led to people not thinking that disease could transport specifically through water mm. or through other other means, right? Fluids basically. Um and this really started to change around this time. So probably one of the first, one of, well, not the first, but one of the more interesting developments in this was the work of Percival Pott, mm-hmm. who found that uh, cancer could actually be transmitted or seemed to be transmitted by an environmental factor. So it was not just a miasma, but it was actually something that people encountered during their daily lives. And in particular, what he found was that chimney sweeps were developing testicular cancer at a higher rate than the average population. Huh. Which is like super interesting, right? Yeah. Some good uh, stats there. Yeah. It's super cool. Interesting. Now, this also kind of started this idea of, again, um, the idea that you could potentially see disease then before it started, right? Yeah. And were diseases linked to something else? And so you had people um, discussing this idea of what was called a germ. So some kind of organism that existed below the, the site level of humans that was actually transmitting disease from person to person, right? Mm-hmm. And this was particularly 
particularly observable if one had access to a tool called a microscope. It's amazing. Now, the, the microscope was the particular favorite of one Joseph Lister, who is easily among the top three most important science, med, you know, doctors, medical doctors of all time. Yes. Joseph Lister uh, really came to fall in love with the microscope and try to use it for science because of his father, who was super into microscopes too. So this is like, imagine your dad is super into model trains, and then later on in life, you find a way to use model trains to like cure cancer or something. Right? Like this is like, this is like akin to that. Like your dad yes. had like a nerdy it's hobby. Exactly like that. And yes. you kept it up. And then all of a sudden you were like, oh shit, I'm a hero. With it. Yeah, I'm the greatest doctor alive. I just used a small model trying to cure cancer. So, so Lister actually was present for the first use of antiseptic or not antiseptic of anesthesia. Um, he was there for that surgery in the United Kingdom, which is, which was super interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and he operated from, or he was alive from 1827 to 1912. Now what Lister, what Lister found was by studying diseased tissues, he saw the presence of microorganisms there. He, he saw bacteria basically. And in reading the work that was coming out at the time about the germ theory of disease, and in particular, the work of Louis Pasteur, who discovered that bacteria could lead to the rotting of food. Yep. Um, Lister supposed that by killing these microorganisms, one might be able to basically cure infection or stop infection, infection from occurring. So what Lister did, so, so Pasteur had these three methods for destroying bacteria. It was filtration, heating, and uh, de destruction by some chemical means. So cleaning, basically, using a cleaning solution. This is all on food. This isn't on live tissue. Let's get that. Yes. Right, 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 but right. This is Pasteur working on food. Lister was, the, on food. Lister was the first one to make the connection between food and the body. Yes. And tissue, yeah. And so what Lister decided to try was, well, I can't heat up the body. I can't filter it. Yeah. But let's try a cleaning solution. Let's try a caustic, some kind of chemical that seems to kill these things. And so what he found was that a caustic solution of um, basically just a caustic solution of 5% of, uh, of a chemical could actually lead to the destruction of these um, destruction of these bacteria. Yes. And so particularly what he did was he used carbolic acid. Um, and this stuff is, uh, it's super, a little harsh. It's well, it's a little bit harsh, but again, it's only a, a small. It's a small amount that he used, right? Yes. Um, and so basically, what this would do was it would kill the bacteria. And so the way that he initially used it was he would swab the wounds of um of of people that he did surgery on. Mm -hmm. And so he found that basically by um by applying it to the wound site and cleaning the wound with this carboxylic acid solution they would not develop gangrene, right? So the body, the, this, this body would not rot for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And, um, which is amazing, which is super amazing. And so what's happening across the pond at the, at the pretty much the same time. Right. And so what else he, what, what, what else he found then was that by applying the same method to other aspects of surgery. So as opposed to just when you amputate a wound, you could then apply this carboxylic acid to the amputated area. You could also, if you had to do surgery and literally like cut into someone, remove something and then close it back up, 
If you apply this carbolic acid to that wound site, it'll heal without infection, right? So that was the next really big thing that he discovered. And this, this uh, in particular was on a surgery of a, of a seven-year-old boy at the Glasgow Infirmary. And so basically this kid, uh, his leg was run over by a cart. And so he had a fracture. And so what Lister found was that by, uh, basically by, by cleaning the wound with the carbolic acid and kind of, you know, healing, putting it back together, basically, he found that the bone healed itself, mm-hmm. right? So the bone actually was able to, was able to come back to its original uh, placement after he had kind of treated it correctly. And also that there was absolutely no, um, no infection. The boy survived. And previously, if you had something like this happen to your leg, it was amputated. Yes. Right. Your leg was not healed. Your leg was not put back together. No. Right. It was gone. It was gone. That was the end of your leg. Yeah. Yes. And so this was like a huge, huge deal at the time. And so this result was published in the Lancet um, in a really famous run of articles. There's a total of six of them. And basically from that point forward, he ran with this idea. Right. So he um, he started having his surgeons actually wash their instruments in this carbolic acid solution, washing their gloves and their hands and their clothing, right? Mm-hmm. He also had, he actually began the practice of sterilization, of literally um, steaming items that were used for surgery to, again, remove, uh, to, to basically fix it with heat, right? To remove the microorganisms in that way. And um, really, this is what he became, this is what he became the most famous for, right? This is really where he became um, the most uh, you know, one of the most important doctors of the time, right? And of, of all time, really, right? So um, this is the first paragraph from his paper on the antiseptic principle in the practice of surgery by Joseph Lister, Esquire, FRS. So, quote, in the course of an extended investigation into the nature of inflammation and the healthy and morbid conditions of the blood in relation to it, I arrived several years ago at the conclusion that the essential cause of superation in wounds is decomposition, brought about by the influence of the atmosphere upon blood or serum retained within them, and in the case of contused wounds upon portions of tissue destroyed by the violence of the injury. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To prevent the occurrence of superation, so superation means the production of pus, basically, with all its attendant risks, was an object manifestly desirable, but till lately apparently unattainable, since it seemed hopeless to attempt to exclude the oxygen, which was universally regarded as the agent by which putrefaction was affected. But when it had been shown by the researchers of Pasteur that the septic property of the atmosphere depended, not on the oxygen or any gaseous constituent, but on minute organisms suspended in it, which owed their energy to their vitality, it occurred to me that decomposition in the injured part might be avoided without excluding the air by applying as a dressing some material capable of destroying the life of the floating particles. 
Upon this principle, I have based a practice of which I will now attempt to give a short account. End quote. Now, that is like the beginning of one of the most important things ever written in human history. That's amazing. It's, it's amazing that he got to that point, too. It's fascinating. And the idea, so what I really like about this section is that he talks about how the idea beforehand was that it was the oxygen or the air, the gas of the air that was leading to the putrefaction of the wound. Yeah. But Pasteur showed to him, to his liking at least, that in fact it was these microorganisms, these bacteria, right? Yeah. It's completely interesting. What's so amazing, too, is the chain of events, right? It's not just one person who comes up with the completion of an answer. He couldn't have gotten to that point without Pasteur in a lot oh, of absolutely ways. absolutely not. No, absolutely who couldn't, Yeah, who still was fighting with the idea that they were uh, humors or that they were, you know, that that was the revolutionary change that he was moving away from. And it's like these little steps that are making it towards something much bigger is so amazing well now here's the fascinating thing right um what's really interesting is that actually at the time lest lister's work was considered to be um far-fetched of course they thought that he like there's responses to his paper where people are like what is this guy talking about he's a quack right like he doesn't know anything and it was only He's out there digging up graves. Well, really, Who is that quack? <laughs> this guy's wacky. This guy's a wacky. It was really over time that this idea became more and more prevalent, and that's kind of where we're going to get to. So, the next really big evidence that this was true. So, Lister started using these aseptic techniques as they were known, but there was also a larger body of information that was coming out that proved the same idea was true, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, Ignaz Semmelweis, a Vienna, a Vienna a Hungarian obstetrician, um, in 1847 noticed that actually, um, if, so an obstetrician is the doctor that basically delivers babies. Yes. Right, and deals with child development. Yes. Um, what he noticed was that when it was midwives who were performing the, the birth, right, when it was midwives helping the birthing mothers, um, there was basically a very little prevalence of mortality, right? But maternal mortality was very low. Mm-hmm. However, if it was a surgeon who just came from surgery or who was wearing their surgical gloves or clothing, who was the one helping with the birth, the mother would almost, uh, was, would quite often die from basically postpartum infection. Mm-hmm. And so what he what he thought was that maybe there was some connection between these two things. Ooh. And in particular, if we could keep the surgeons who are coming from autopsies out of these birthing rooms, maybe we could keep these, uh, maybe we could keep these women from dying. And so in fact, uh, Semmelweis actually made the surgeons who would help with these births. Um, he made them wash their hands with, uh, with basically um, water that had a chlorinated, basically, again, water that was chlorinated to remove bacteria from it, mm-hmm. right? Little did they know that that was what was going on. Mm-hmm. But what he found was that, in fact, it, it, it reduced the mortality rate significantly, right? So it went from like 20% to 2%. It's a huge difference in mortality. But when he tried to send those results over to the Royal Society, um, he was told that his work was not important. <laughs> 
right? So it's, it's fascinating. Diminutive. It, it, completely fascinating how long it takes sometimes for science to get into this whole thing. Oh, my God. Now, the next, the next really, the next big thing that makes the case for this, um, this idea of the germ theory of disease is the work of John Snow. Now, Marie, I know what you're thinking. No, I'm not. I'm not even going to say it. You know why? Because this is all science all the time, man. There's no dragons around here. I know what you're thinking, Marie. Just say it. Just say it, Marie. No dragons. What? No, I'm not going to. I'm not. I'm not going. You know nothing, Jon Snow. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Okay. <gasps> okay, I feel better. All right, good. We're, we're doing that's like that's like you know the old cartoon when it's like you know Bugs Bunny listening for them. And he's like, ah! You can't stop it. You can't stop it, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Jon Snow was a super, super duper important scientist at the time. And so he was a real person. What? And a real person. Yeah, a real person, which is amazing. A real person and not a character. Okay, continue. Okay. He basically had this idea that so there were there were cholera outbreaks all the time in London. And what he found was that by going and actually looking at where the cholera was starting from, that cholera outbreaks seemed to occur around central locations. They always seemed to be centered on neighborhoods. And he figured that that didn't make sense if it was miasma. Right? Air transports all over the place. So for it to be only localized to certain, like, in some cases, certain streets, right? So uh, in this case, it was Broad Street, the 1854 Broad Street cholera outbreak. Ah, uh, yeah. What he found was that by actually talking to the people who were there and looking at what they did during their daily lives, he was able to find that all of it was coming from the same water, that everyone was getting their water from the same common source. Mm-hmm. They were all getting their water from this one specific, uh, this one specific water well, basically. Yeah. Right. Pump or something. Yeah. And so this pump, this water pump, was obviously to him at least the source of this cholera outbreak. And so what he proposed was, well, clearly, this is not being transported through the air, but it's being transported through water. Right. And so how would that possibly, how could that possibly be? And what he found was that this water was basically filthy, right? It was, um, it was basically, it was mostly poop, less water. Yes. Right. And so there's a quote here from him, from his work on the mode of communication of cholera, which is a, a, a essay that he published in 1849. And the quote goes, quote, having rejected effluvia and the poisoning of the blood in the first instance, and being led to the conclusion that the disease is something that acts directly on the elementary canal, the excretions of the sick at once suggest themselves as containing some material which being accidentally swallowed might attach itself to the mucous membrane of the small intestines, and there multiply itself by appropriation of surrounding matter, in virtue of molecular changes going on within it, or capable of going on, as soon as it is placed in congenial circumstances, end quote. Which basically is a very complicated way of saying that the sick person takes a poop, mm-hmm. you then eat the poop by accident, mm-hmm. and then you get sick. So don't eat the poop. But he wouldn't have learned any of this had he not actually talked to the people that were being affected Absolutely. as well. Which I think is a Absolutely. huge divergent from 
anyone who was a doctor at that time who was didn't want to deal with sickness. Oh, totally. Didn't want to so, talk or go to these these very poor places that was having this affected. So John Snow is actually considered to be one of the most important figures in public health, but also in epidemiology, yes. right? Where do yeah. diseases come from? How do they start? And he actually, it's really interesting. You can go look at the maps that he drew of the cholera cases occurring in clusters around London, mm-hmm. right? It's fascinating to see kind of the, you know, we think of it today as like, you know, you watch TV shows of like, oh, there's an outbreak of a zombie virus and how is it spreading, right? Like that is a, that's a very new idea of like looking at the system, looking at it systematically. Before that, we were just like, right. God's punishing us. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we had no sense of systematizing this, this idea. Yes. Yes. Now, what is, so what's super interesting about this is that he then proposed, if it seems to be linked to the water, Mm -hmm. then we need to clean the water in some way. What? And so what he basically, he's the very first person to ever say that water should be filtered and boiled before it's used in areas that have these outbreaks. Um, so it's, it's super interesting. It's like, it's, it's so interesting. And now what's really cool is, which again is almost like common sense. Like that now, it's like, of course you would do that, but like that's hugely forward. Yeah. What's what's interesting is that this water was coming from the from the Thames River. Oh God. But in particular, what they found was that actually this well that they were using was dug only a few feet away from a cesspit oh, that God. was underneath a bunch of homes. So and then basically as they as they did construction and widened the street and stuff the cesspit started to leak into the water source and that was how the cholera outbreak started. Of course. Yes. So it is, it is one of the most interesting, one of the most interesting instances in my mind of um, science really kind of winning out outbreak over, uh, over superstition or or rather over a bad theory. Right. Yeah. Ignorance. And again, it's like all of these little steps together of people doing something slightly different and reaching out scientifically in a different way brought this, brought all of germ theory together to what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we end up now at a point where, so just to give some kind of sense of the, Mm -hmm. just to give a sense of the scale of what we're talking about here, right. Of, of how much better things got the, um, in, in during this time period, the chances of you dying from surgery were close to at best 50% at worst, much higher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you had a surgery that required them to open you up and then close you back up, you basically were dead. Yes. You had like a, there was a very little chance of you ever getting better. Now with the use of a septic technique, um, you were actually able to start doing things like removing cysts and removing tumors and actually, um, you know, even simple things that we think of today as being like not big surgeries, like popping a pimple, right? Like getting rid of a, of a, of a cyst or something was a major surgery back then. That was not something that was simple at all. Yes. So the, the, the decline in deaths was staggering. So, um, the chances of you dying from uh, the percentage of death from lower limb amputations um, was 58% in Spain, 42% in Brussels, 
70% in Paris, um, 58% at University College London, 70% in the Royal London uh, Hospital, 65% in Crimea, and only 36% in the American Civil War. So the civil, you know, the uh, just, this, and this is at the same, this is around the same time as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're mm -hmm. saying London, with all of its advances and these hospitals, still had a 70% mortality rate from amputations of lower limbs, whereas the Civil War had a rate of 36%. So really, you, you would have fared far better in a Civil War surgeon's tent than at a hospital in London. <laughs> True. You may have other issues. Which, well, no, absolutely. <laughs> but, I'm just saying, like, problems, but it would not be that. Yeah, yes. But it's, but it's completely fascinating, right? And so um, all of this stuff, all these pieces of knowledge that we started having um, really began to completely change the way that we did surgery, yeah. right? So um, we started to move patients farther apart from each other and close them off from each other, right? So hospitals used to be these big wards where all these beds were near each other. We started to stop doing that so that disease, you know, wouldn't spread so easily. We started cleaning our hands before we started doing surgery and opening up people's bodies, right? Started sterilizing. Started things. sterilizing tools. And we also started to actually care more fully about the understanding of the underlying mechanisms of surgery and the underlying mechanisms of the body. So you know, these, all of these individuals, Hunter, Potts, Jon Snow, Lister, all of them deserve their own, their own books, really. And a lot of them do have really great books written on them. But this is just a, it's fascinating to think. So from the 1730s to the, uh, to the 1930s, mm -hmm. we went from basically performing surgery, you know, in, so in three generations, let's say, of humans. We went from performing surgery as a something that barbers did, right? Yes. To to pretty close to what we consider to be modern day standards. Yes. Right. Yes. Now or closer. Yes. Closer, at least. Now the yes. next, really, the next big advancement that occurred was the ability to start looking at the wound in different ways, and that comes about thanks to the work of physicists what right and chemists those awesome. bastards it finally Sorry, comes yes. back to <laughs> us right because biology is not a real science marie <laughs> and <laughs> i'm like i'm surprised katie didn't throw a book in my head right now i was gonna say you're welcome biologist cannot believe it um so yeah so the next big advancement besides being able to actually open up people and just get better at that process yeah. was being able to diagnose without opening up the body what that's crazy so marie you that's had, witchery that's witchery that's witchery so marie you had some stuff on this so i mean basically again around world war one a lot of this started to come into effect that you have again more advent ways of killing one another drives you know more more need to to try and to try and heal the human body so a physicist actually discovered ionizing radiation and developed the x-ray which is now even this basically it hasn't really 
the science behind it, the dosage of the radiation and the safety behind it has, has improved greatly, but the actual mechanics are, are still very similar. Yeah. So, so being able to look at the human body and without opening them up. And also, before we move on, or the transfusion of blood are the two other big things that happen yes. sort of at the same time. Right. So we're able to safely be able to understand uh, how to do blood transfusions and how to coagulate and regulate them more and 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 have more success with them at the same time being able to look into x-rays. So the x-ray was discovered by William Rankin. Yes. Who, Wilhelm. Yeah, Wilhelm. Rankin. Rankin? Rankin. The first x-ray was developed by, or the x-ray was discovered by William Rankin. Who was a physicist. Who was a, was a, was a physicist. And basically what. He was a physicist. What he found was that you could put a, put a hand in front of ionizing radiation. And if you were to film behind it, what you would find is that you could actually see the bones. Yes. Of the hand. And the reason that this works is that the radiation just passes right through the skin and tissue but it can't penetrate the bone. And so you end up with this dark area where the bone is. Yes. And the color of the, the color, like the, the grayness of the, of the image tells you something about the kind of the relative depth and the relative hardness and all this other interesting stuff. And this is, I mean, it's a huge important thing to now be able to actually study the body without having to go in there. Right. Yes. Just as we started getting over our taboo about cutting into bodies, we no longer needed to cut into them. Right. Which is super interesting. Exactly. And, you know, if you want to hear more about kind of the uh, the development of X-rays and and, and radiation generally as a tool, we have an episode on that on radioactive monsters. (laughs) Um, It's super relevant to this. But yeah, right in there. And then the other, the other thing was, the other one was, uh, was blood transfusions. Interestingly, now mm-hmm. blood transfusions started with animal to human transfusions, right? We thought, we thought again, again, though, it's interesting that we thought again, it's interesting to me to think how like we blood's blood, right? They just right. Thought blood's blood. <laughs> yeah, we just blood's, blood. blood's blood's blood, like whatever, right? Blood's blood. Um, well, why wouldn't it be? It looks red. It's the same consistency from animals to us, right? Yeah, animals have hearts. Super, we have hearts. It's super interesting. Now, the first, um, the first blood transfusions or the first animal to human transfusions were done by Dr. John Baptiste Denis, mm-hmm. who um, put sheep blood into humans. Um, and actually, some people did survive this. Um, and the, the reason they think that they probably survived was that it was just such a small amount of blood that they could actually withstand the uh, body trying to kill the sheep blood being unnaturally added. Out. <laughs> um, Basically just trying to kill what's ever. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. and then afterwards you kept trying it on different people. They just kept dying. Um, <laughs> it just didn't work. It's like really bad. No. And so um, it's like, it was super interesting. Right. And uh, really the first time that it was kind of tr- tested on, um, what's the word like, like transfusing, transfusing blood to other humans was again occurring at the same time as this work of Lister and, um, you know, John Snow, like 1840s. Right. And in particular, like 
We're talking a lot about London here, but a lot of this stuff was going on in Edinburgh. Like yes. it, it cannot the contributions to medicine that occurred from um, from Edinburgh um, and the hospitals there and the uh, surgeons that were operating there yeah, schools, can, yeah. cannot be understated. Edinburgh was potentially even more important than London um, in this aspect. Agreed. So um, so it's super interesting, though. And then the idea of actually being able to like store blood for use later. That was another very interesting idea, but <laughs> anyways, potentially we'll get, we'll get into that more. If we ever do an episode on world war one. Yes. Marie. But I would say like, so all of these ideas sort of came about in Edinburgh, but really were road tested in the wars. Yeah. Right. Especially, yeah. World war one, especially for blood transfusion was a huge, a huge, um, again, you had to be quick at doing it. It had to be, uh, it only had a lot of other uh, competing priorities. It was, it's, it would be kind of interesting to do. Uh, we should do something a little bit more cheerful, probably, before we go into another, <laughs> before we round this out, history of surgery and go straight into something like war, we should do something. What like, do you mean? This is plenty cheerful. I don't know, something like, yeah. It's very, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, I was thinking a little bit more, no. Cheerful, cheerful. Next episode, Magic of Cats. Um, Magic of Bunnies. (laughs) It's it's fascinating. Now, this, all of this ends up leading to almost a point where we have, so an aspect of this that we didn't really touch on that I think is really fascinating for myself Mm -hmm. is the idea of medical quackery being such a prominent thing, right? So then or now or in general? Well, both. Yeah. But okay. it's kind of like it's really, really interesting to look at this time period of mm-hmm. the eighteen hundreds to say the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, where again, we're like in this transitional period for this science. We're at a point where medicine is going from being something that had a very steady basis in fact um or rather a steady a hard start where medicine begins where it's this very philosophically driven enterprise where there's not a lot of empirical studies to prove things it's just kind of well it makes sense that the body's balanced by by these four things and whatever and in that in that area then there's a lot of room for magic right there's a lot of room Mm -hmm. for non- Mm -hmm sensical arguments because that's the Mm -hmm. argument type that the main heads are making yeah it's but it's fascinating to look at the type of the type of techniques that were being sold as really useful potentially and then the ways that those were misused by people right so for example um there's a really famous uh there's a really famous american surgeon at the time who became addicted to cocaine (laughs) As you do. Yeah. And the reason that he became addicted to cocaine was that he was trying to, he was testing it um, on himself and his patients. So this is William Stewart Halstead. Um, basically, they were trying to see if cocaine could be used as a local anesthesia. And so him and his students were putting it on their eyeballs. Whoa. And he was like, he was like, I don't Whoa. feel anything, man. I feel great. 
going out going out to dance for hours no! and hours right they're like so, damn man crazy stew it's so it's like so interesting to me that it kind of like, yeah. again we're, we're at a forefront where the you know the stuff that could work was not any more crazy than the stuff that didn't was never going to work in a million years Right. That's, yeah, that's a good point. And we're, a good point. And we're, and we're it's, and the other thing too is that like the ideas that we're talking about now, like to us, blood transfusion seems like such a sensible thing. Yeah. Right. But that's a crazy idea. That's a nuts idea. Like think, we're yeah. we're talking about a time where you might you know the idea that blood comes back that you make more blood. That is not a a logical thought. Right. I'm not really. No. Like <laughs> now it is. Now it is. About it is. But then that was a completely crazy thought. So, anyways, but I think even now. So I work with a, a group of radiologists, actually, and one of the big advents that is coming in technology. When you look at like MR machines or uh, or mammograms or CTs, anything along those lines, or X rays, even is uh, artificial intelligence. Sure. And how much data, if you have this huge repository of data worldwide and nationally, and you can boil it down and you can make sense of it, a machine can read a x-ray. A machine can read or diagnose. Sure. And what does that mean to um, sort of the human doctor? And how does that, and how accurate is that? And how far off is something like that? Because if you think about that now, it's like now to have something read, like you would go in, you would, uh, you know, you'd, you would have to have the schedule, you'd sit down, a technician would run, you know, a series of diagnostics on you, you would go out, it would be days later that you would actually have the results of it. Sure. With AI, it's like you would have the results of it, the preliminary results in minutes, seconds, that fast. And it's like, and from the testing that they've done with IBM Watson, it's pretty accurate. It's not without, you know, there's been some like false positives or, you know, things that they couldn't diagnose, but for sort of the standard run-of-the-mill testing, it is, it is coming along faster than, than the medical community, I think, is somewhat comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a little scary, too, because you think about a surgeon or a doctor and sort of what you expect of them. And you do expect sort of this human rapport and this sort of interaction of a doctor in bed, quote unquote, bedside manner. And it, what happens when that's when that's a machine? And what does that mean for patients, too? And it's just right. an interesting next next generation thought that I think that's that is coming up more and more in technology within the medical device space. It also gets it's into amazing. It also gets into the question though of like, you know, a tool is only as good as mm-hmm. the person wielding it, right? Agreed. So like I always think whenever, whenever people tell me about AI, I always think about mm-hmm. there's a really funny scene. Singularity. You think about <laughs> singularity, right? A little bit. No, there's, there's a really funny scene in Silicon Valley. Do you watch that show? Oh my God, I love that show. Okay. When um what is that guy's name? The what it's is like, the name of the funny. Uh, the roommate who like hates Eric, the uh, oh my god, yes, what's his name? The guy from China. What is his name? 
Oh God, I can't. I knew it until like. Oh my God! Of course, I can't remember it now. I know. Well, anyways, he he comes up with a he comes up with an algorithm that can identify. They think it's able to identify food, food like all food, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And instead, all it can do is tell you if something's a hot dog or not a hot dog. It's just hysterical, right? And so he so it's like hot dog, not a hot dog. And he's like, "What do you mean?" Like they're when they see it, they're like. They're like, what the hell? This doesn't work at all. And he's like, it works perfectly. That's all I told him to do. Was like, is it a hot dog? Is it not a hot dog? Not a hot dog. And then it's, um That's AI. Oh, Chin, what's his name? Chin Jin Yang? Jin Yang! That's Jin it. Yang! And then okay. and then okay. they and then uh who is it? Like Skype or someone buys it from him and they mm-hmm. use it to mm-hmm. get rid of dick mm-hmm. pics? Yes. Right? Exactly. It's like it's able to pick out exactly. the hot dogs from the not hot, hot, dog, dog. Not a hot dog. Hot dog, not a hot dog. So that's funny to me. Hysterical. Like, and that's kind that's, of that's it. And yeah. that really is sort of like what you know. It, it, it's true though for a lot of technologies. Like, so we're actually listeners going to do a bonus episode with a, a surgeon, a, a brain surgeon, a neurosurgeon. Yes, um, which is going to be yes. fascinating. And we're going to talk about kind of how surgery is progressing today, and like you know, because the brain, in some ways, it's inter- interesting because surgery sort of started with the brain by trepanning, right? That's like one of the yes. first surgeries we were able to do, and it's still like one of the surgeries that were probably least comfortable performing, I would say, or like it's probably one of the more less common types of surgery. I was asking him about that. I was like, dude, we did a huge thing on trepanning. And he's like, great. <laughs> he probably hates getting asked about that. Um, so the, yes. the other, but the interesting thing though, to me is always like, when you look at these, so one big, one big thing that's like huge in modern biotechnology, let's say, or biomedicine mm-hmm. or biomedical engineering is probably a better way of saying it is, um, you know, like, using nanoparticles or 3d printing mm-hmm. or whatever yes and we sell them as these really interesting advances and then when you re- you find out what they're using it for it's like all really stupid like not stupid it's interesting and it's good but they're all very like they're all very uh because we don't have a lot of control at the scale of like nanotechnology yet yeah they're all very uh, rudimentary yeah right and you can and you can see how in a hundred years 50 years someone doing another podcast would look back and be like can you believe they did that with nanoparticles back then right like Oops. like, like yes. the way, right like the way we're talking about surgery in the civil war like yeah you know so like nanoparticles when yeah, totally basically what we do is we coat them with some kind of chemical that attaches them specifically to a type of tumor or a specific mm-hmm. part of the body whatever and then we just kind of try to inject it near that part of the body mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. or we like hope we hope that it'll get there somehow so like you eat this pill with nanoparticles in it and you really hope that the coating won't dissolve away until it gets to your liver right or some other weird part of your body whatever <gasps> um and the same thing is true with 3d printing like i i heard a i i went to a really fascinating talk that a chemist gave where he talked about, um, he was getting an award. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say his name, but the story basically was that he, he was working with a quack. No, he was a great, a great, great chemist. Uh, he was working on, uh, 3d printing for wound healing. Yes. And specifically he was looking at the ability to create 3d printed bones, um, for implantation into like, you know, motorcycle accident, 
people mm-hmm. or, or whatever. So like, you mm-hmm. know, um, currently, like if you have a traumatic head injury, we just put a plate over the hole. Right. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with like, you know, you, you break an arm really badly. Like all we can do is kind of kind of put the bone together and hope it'll heal. Yep. And mm-hmm. so what his work was, was well, we can, what if we scan the bone and then 3D print you a piece that can be implanted and it'll actually fit that wound much better. Right. Right. Yeah. That was a fascinating story for me, but um, the only time it's been done on a human so far was like, um, was in secret. <laughs> in, a, in a country that doesn't have medical regulations. Mm, of course. Um, Natch. You know, so, it, Natch, it's, so yeah. it's interesting how... So it might be a little dicey. It's I, very um, dicey, yeah. I was reading, um, speaking of neurology, I was reading, or actually I think this doctor was telling me about um, someone who's using 3D printing to help train your up-and-coming neurologists on the vascular, sort of the vascular paths in the brain. Sure. So if you're going in to try and remove a clot, you can test on this 3D printed thing instead of uh, brain. Right. Or whatever they're using. I don't even know what you'd be using now. But it's like, that to me is an amazing, like, using it as, using it as a tool of practice is really interesting. Instead of it being the thing that you're implanting or that you're using, but it's sort of a proxy for something else, like a proxy for a bone or a proxy for, um, you know, the vascular system. That's, that's, that is, I would hope that that would be more and more that that would be utilized more and more. Right. Because that's interesting. So we will, we will talk with, uh, we will talk with this doctor if he's still, <laughs> after the trepanning, I was <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh God, these people, all they want to talk like, about is cutting holes in the heads. Oh, you know, and I'm like, so, but is that? And he's like, are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think the interesting thing too, and we didn't really talk about it in this time, but we'll talk about it with him maybe, is sort of the type of person that becomes a surgeon. And like, what are the, are there, are there a set of characteristics or a set of qualities that, that are more prevalent in surgeons that aren't? Do you know what I mean? It's like, you always have the assumption that they're, you know, that they've got the God complex, that they're very confident, that they're very whatever. And I'm wondering kind of how true or how false, there's no way of really knowing this from any one particular conversation, but like how true that is. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at. The people we were talking about today, they were a little quirky for their times, right? They didn't, they probably had some pretty strong opinions and sure. weren't too pleasant to, you know, hurt was not too pleasant to deal with. And I'm wondering if that's sort of just sort of the, the, um, just sort of the characteristics you almost have to have to be okay with cutting into somebody, right? Because you're not looking at that person necessarily in an emotional sense. You're looking at them as a, um, I don't want to say an object, but you're looking at them as something that has to be fixed. Yeah. And, uh, and not something that's, you know, I what you're saying. fuzzy. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, so interesting. Well, guys, that is it for this week's episode. Sweet. What an exciting thing to have been. What an exciting, what an exciting series to have done. I learned so much this, like, I really, I have learned a tremendous amount about surgery. I did too. This whole series. Like Didn't black out once either. Not once. A couple times we were a little bit. A couple times I had to hit the shocker. I had to hit the shocking button here to get you. But it's oh, okay. Yeah. We're good. I had to shake it off a little bit. Yeah, I had to go out and. We're doing it good. Pick up the cat and cuddle the cat for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
The next episode, dear listeners, is actually going to be on fluoridation of water. What? That's crazy. And conspiracy theories around that, which is going to be super exciting, I think. (gasps) My favorite two words. Yeah. Conspiracy theories. Weird. Again, it's something weird. Now, uh, Getting before, weird again. <laughs> before, before we end this one, we wanted to give a shout out to those of you who have left us reviews on iTunes. Um, we you, love you. If you like the show, consider supporting us in whatever way you can. Um, iTunes reviews and subscriptions really help us a lot. It helps put us on the, yes. uh, helps put us up on the rankings, helps get other people to see us, you know? So um, we want to give a shout out to these people. We want to give a shout out to uh, Weird Plane. Weird Plane. Sam Culper. Tea Spells and Secrets. What? Antediluvian one. Antediluvian one. It's a good one. The Living. I love these people. The Living Canvas. Love that. Ponhiki and History Liker. Now, History Liker, we want to let you know your comment actually caused us to uh, get a sound designer. So thank you for kicking us in the butt and causing us to go out there and get a sound designer. I hope it is. I hope the volume issue has been fixed. Um, you see how we listen? You see how we listen to We're so good. We're so good. And how much we love this. you. <laughs> Anyways. If you, guys, if you guys tell me to wear the tracksuit, to the formal event, I'm gonna. She's I'm gonna, gonna people. She's gonna wear it. Regardless. Gonna wear it. I don't care any people. Regardless of what her boss says. Regardless if it gets me canned, people, <laughs> and I'm out on the street wearing my Adidas. It's all cool. <laughs> Anyways, listeners, thank you so much for listening, and um, we will be back in a week with the next episode. Bye. I'm Eliza. And I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all? And you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt. The ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words. My story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. <laughs>